We're back talking about the history of privacy in America. So, Ed, Nathan, I want to ask you a question. And the question is, was there ever a golden age of privacy in America? Yes. I'm going to say early America. That was a strong answer. Yeah, no, 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 I'm just thinking about like the lone house on the prairie, right? Not a neighbor around for miles and miles. There's no computer to hack. There's no phone to tap. I have to imagine that that kind of distance and isolation, as I think about it warmly, was was the height of privacy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would say that you're you're not taking into account something that probably had a much larger impact in colonial and revolutionary America, and that's community. Right. Okay. Right? I mean, even out on the frontier, you're probably not isolated because you're probably not there all by yourself unless you're some kind of strange hermit person. You probably have people who are helping (laughs) you run your farm. Introvert is the proper term. I like that. (laughs) Okay. I don't know if they got to use that term in the 17th or 18th century, but okay, we'll stick with introvert. Even then, if you were running a farm of any kind or doing something agrarian, you you were surrounded by people and you probably lived in a space where there was one big room Mm. and you were surrounded by people a lot of the time. The same was even more true in Puritan colonial New England, where you had the church. First of all, the church and the state were basically intertwined in Puritan New England. Mm -hmm. And the church and the state would have felt that they were required to watch everyone in the community and and see their behavior and decide whether or not people were behaving in a moral way. Wow. That sounds like the opposite of a golden age to me. (laughs) I don't think that my period, I don't win the golden age of privacy prize uh, in my time period. Did that change much uh, over the colonial and revolutionary era? Was that kind of a a fixed set of ideals? No, certainly in revolutionary America, it's not as though in this period when everybody was suddenly focused on, you know, their rights as colonists and then their rights as Americans, you would think maybe the right to privacy would have been a right that they were screaming about. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't bound up in the rights that they were screaming about. And as a matter of fact, being a revolutionary and being in that climate People cared a lot about what you did and whether or not you were being loyal to the cause. So kind of harkening back. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I feel you must be wrong because uh, the Declaration (laughs) of Independence, (laughs) it's all about individual rights and everything. That that, that must have been connected in some ways to To some ideal privacy. No? Well, I'm thinking of committees of inspection. Right, which are also called committees (laughs) of observation. She sees your declaration and raises you a committee of inspection. (laughs) No, but what what are these? What are what are these committees of inspection? Well, they're wild, right? There's so this is during the revolutionary era. Um, People were very concerned about whether or not people in the local community were abiding by boycotts. Were they buying and selling Mm. tea? And Mm. to make sure that people were not doing things like buying and selling tea, communities, and they were actually asked explicitly by the Continental Congress to do this, created committees of inspection or otherwise called committees of observation. And their job was to watch everyone and see (laughs) if people were buying or selling tea. There's a story of this poor guy in Massachusetts who um, was, I guess, accused of buying tea. And supposedly (gasps) 500 people went to his house. 500? With a statement that they forced him to sign, swearing that he would never again buy tea. Oh, my gosh. So, number one, it's serious. And number two, not so private. Right. And then, not only that, but if they found that you were guilty of buying or selling a boycotted good, they could, and often did, 
publish your name in the newspaper as an enemy of liberty. Yeah, I'm like, oh, I got to get in here. I mean, this is crazy. Like, because <laughs> so, my, my, my jaw is on the floor right now because there's this image <laughs> of you know, early America as this point of liberty. And you're talking about it as being, you know, deeply dependent on surveillance, public shaming, walking into somebody's house, inspecting their personal goods. Community. God, <laughs> that's one <laughs> word for it. Oh, my well, Lord. Right. Yeah, that, I mean, but, but we don't have that sense of community now, right? I mean, thank goodness. Whatever we, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm with Give you. Give me my house on the prairie. Oh my lord! I'm with you. Wow, no, I mean, no. Also, I mean, as you mentioned about the church, I mean, and the state, it's like you've got a combination of you know public shaming, possibly even mob violence, and but then there's also like this weird internal invasion of one's privacy, right? Like the guilt that one might feel for you know not reading their Bible in a timely manner, or God forbid, making a cup of tea, you know, from the British. I mean, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. So Nathan, that is outrageous and shocking, and it's shocking to us in part because we so internalize ideas of personal space. Now we use that phrase metaphorically. Now, give me my space, man. But kidding aside, how did the revolution come out of this with its great focus on individual rights? Can you help me understand how they would square that circle? Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, probably property has a lot to do with that. Mm. The right to ownership of one's property, the right to not have people take one's property. Right. So in, in one way or another, and this gets actually to the idea of physical space, right? That, mm-hmm. that there is an idea at the time that a, a person's, well, I should say a man's home is his castle. And so we are then talking about ownership of a space in addition to ownership of things. And I think oh. that's a little bit of what's being explored in this period. One thing that I happen to have stumbled across in my reading about this is at about the same time as the revolution, our modern concept of privacy is built with remarkable speed. Now, it is invented, first of all, in the physical space of people's homes, and it develops not on the prairie, but rather in the towns (laughs) and cities of the Northeast, where one of the first things that people with money purchase is separation from one another in their own families. They start instituting private bedrooms, if you know what I mean, and they also start uh, instituting, wait for it, privies. Wow. Those become the first words that I know of in which a place is associated with the very concept of privacy. Hmm. Separate spaces out of doors that separate that bodily function from everything else that's going on inside the house. So those become the first real divisions of what private life is like. I think that's so striking, Ed, because what we're really seeing, what you've just described, is ideas that are not only happening quickly, but so quickly they're being given real form in the shape of buildings. Yeah, it costs money to do that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's a dramatic way of seeing change over time that we don't always get. And one thing that's interesting, too, is that it begins spreading from cities. And Frederick Law Olmsted takes a tour of the antebellum South. And uh, one of the things he's most shocked by is that even there in the enlightened 19th century, there are places in the South where entire families are sleeping in the same room. And mm-hmm. he finds this by the standards of Northern culture by the 1850s to be outlandish. A hundred years earlier, Joanne, that would have been the standard, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even the, the big plantation houses of the South begin mimicking or embodying some of these same ideas. And one of the strongest demarcations between the homes of the wealthy and the homes of the poor, especially the homes of the enslaved, becomes how much privacy is built into the bricks and mortar of a home. Mm-hmm. 
So if you really mm-hmm. want to see sort of the, the cultural meaning of privacy, the cultural value of privacy, yeah. it's what slave owners forced upon the people they own and protected for themselves. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you.